0: Hello and welcome to this week's Bosscast in association with Property Week. I'm Andrew Teacher. I'm a senior advisor at Montford, and I'm joined this week by Louis-Simon Ferland, who is the CEO and founder at Boreal. We're going to be talking about logistics, we're going to be talking about institutional investment, we're going to be talking about Canadians in London, a bit of ice hockey, and also about what's going to come next for the world of private equity real estate. Louis Simon, great to see you. Thank you for coming in. How is everything in your world at this minute? It's been a difficult year for everyone, particularly those in more of the startup boat, but you're not a startup anymore. You've been going for nearly two years. You've got a significant mandate
1: with Cadillac Fairview, and you've built a pretty astonishing team around you. Well, first, thanks, Andy, for having me. And then, yeah, it has been a very interesting two years to launch a business. But as you said, despite, obviously, the headwinds, we've grown the business. We started four guys and two laptops between the four of us. Now we've got 23 people, we've got people in France, we've got people in the Netherlands. And look at a challenging investment environment, and one that's been obviously changing a lot over the last 24 months, but also a great environment and a great vintage looking forward to be able to invest and have dry powder. So
0: let's dial back a little bit and explain what Boreal is. Sounds a bit like L'Oreal. You've got great skin, so maybe there's an alignment there with cosmetics. But you don't come from a cosmetics background. You studied law originally and then real estate at Columbia. Tell us about some of your background. And many people listening to this will know you from your role at Blackstone and you were synonymous with Logicor and really the coming out party for industrials over the last 10 years kind of had your face stapled to the posters really let's be honest but tell us about some of your background you grew up in canada and you've been here for a number of years
1: correct <laughs> andy i'm not sure where to start here but uh, yes it all started in canada a few years back now so i'm originally canadian a french canadian if anyone's trying to place the accent got a scholarship to play hockey at McGill. And so to your original point about hockey, that's probably the link into why I'm here. So I was a high hockey player growing up, studied law at McGill, and then sort of pivoted, went to New York in the early 2000s. So were you about a lawyer or about a hockey player? I do hope, Andy, I'm a significantly better investor than hockey player. I did what I could with what I had, but yes, McGill well, was as you've been in a part. sector that essentially represents a hockey stick
0: for a graph over the last 10 years. <laughs> yeah. So there's obviously been an osmosis of performance. Quite to, possibly. Uh, so Columbia, New York, obviously a very prestigious academic institution,
1: one of the best on the planet. It was a great two years, Andy. So yes, I practiced law for about three years in New York and then wanted to pivot to real estate effectively. So Columbia's MBA program is a very good real estate program. To be honest, it's been tremendous to me. I met my wife there and met my partner, Nikos, met my investor, Jenny at Cadillac Fairview. So a lot to be said for my time spent at Columbia. But then when I came out, I had been six years in New York, was curious about Europe and decided to try it for one summer, so came over, worked for Merrill Lynch. So did Nikos, by the way, so obviously we followed each other there. Obviously that summer went well, got offered a job, thought I would come back to London for maybe a couple of years, and nearly 17 years after, I'm still there. Have you got leave to remain? Have we taken your visa off you? No, you guys kept me. You guys gave me approval to stay. Oh, okay. And I'm, so I'm a UK citizen, and my children will probably say they're English. Oh, that's good. Good to have more skilled
0: people in the country because we're (laughs) running a bit short at the minute. In terms of the business then, I mean, obviously you made your name at Blackstone. You spent a number of years there and worked across all asset classes. You didn't just do industrials. I think that's obviously what you're known for. But what were the years at Blackstone like? How did you develop as a human, as an investor, as a businessman in that context? It's quite a hard place to cut your teeth, isn't it?
1: It is a hard place, there is no doubt, but it was also an amazing place to be from 2010. It was in growth mode in Europe and I've been part of that journey, which has been sort of tremendous. So if you ask me like what I think about when I think about my time at Blackstone, there's probably three main things, Andy. First is like given how small it was, it's like the quality of real estate investors And frankly, professionals and human beings I got to interact with, starting with the founder of the business, John Schreiber, who founded this with Steve Schwartzman, And a lot of the values that you still see in Blackstone Real Estate date back to John's time with the firm. John Gray, obviously, was an incredibly charismatic leader and a great investor. The two heads of the business in Europe that I've seen, Ken Kaplan, who's now the co-CEO of the business with Kathleen, Ken was... In Europe with us for five years in the trenches, Anthony Myers, who is probably as close to a mentor as I've had in this business, and those were obviously extremely rigorous, extremely hardworking, but people that also treated people decently, and that was definitely something that was not negotiable at Blackstone. And frankly, even like to the current leadership, James Cipalla, Samir Amici, Farad Karim. So the people I got access to there, yes, maybe it's not an easy place. No, this is not a lifestyle place to be. But the quality of the people I got to work with day in, day out, that's probably the first thing I would say about my time there. The second thing, which I hope to use in my business, is I've seen how they've grown and how they've identified avenues of growth and then found the right people within the business to kind of grow these things and kind of put the weight of the institution behind them. Mm. So it was still at a time, a very entrepreneurial place where you got a lot of room. I mean, you mentioned Logicor, but I could only build this business by having had a lot of rope to grow it, but it was still remain fairly disciplined. So it's not like you were out there doing anything. There was definitely a high level of discipline and I guess the last thing I can say about my time there, I think if I think back, is the really talented group of guys that were there. And now these guys are all over the market. And I mean, it's an incredible network. But also, to be honest, almost more importantly, the vast majority of these guys are friends no, And they're all across Europe, across different businesses. So yeah, was it a lifestyle place to be? Certainly not. Did I grow a lot as an investor and human beings in my 10 years there? For sure. And how does it impact
0: you Having children and being a father, how did you align those two very different but important responsibilities?
1: It's a very good question, Andy. The key, I think, for me at least, was to have a supporting partner, a supporting spouse. I mean, Tammy was at MBA school with me. She understood what I was trying to do, and she was willing to sort of deal with more of her fair share, frankly, of taking care of children and the household duties to allow me to do this. So that's... Definitely a key. And look, life is all about compromises and we hope we made the right ones and we think we probably made the right ones, but reconciling the two was never going to be easy. It's tough not to regret not having spent more time with your spouse, your kids, your friends. But also, I think as I was doing this, I really enjoyed it. I was seeing the business grow. I was seeing the people we were putting into Logicor. As a business, it was growing. and As an investment, it was growing. It was working well. I didn't do this by myself. No, There was a lot of people that worked with me on this, and I enjoyed spending time with them. So it was a challenge on the family, but it was also exhilarating. And if maybe I have one regret, it's maybe that I wasn't able to compartmentalize it enough. In hindsight, it feels like I was chasing my tail on a professional level, on a personal level. And then I wish I had been able to put it into more like blocks, no, but-, but That's that, not
0: how the brain works, yeah. though, is it? And I think on the plus side, at least you were somewhere that was exhilarating and growing. And there's certainly people I know in opposite camps there where they're working in high pressure, highly paid jobs that often people absolutely hate. Working for thankless paymasters. A lot of lawyers actually seem to think like that. But often I do find the people I know, certainly people that I've worked with over the years, have a similar view to that, largely because the people you build around you are often quite fun. They're the people you want to hang out with. And certainly, as I was building up Blackstock, it's very different from Blackstone, clearly, other than the name. <laughs> for me, there's a certain aspect of right, you're going to be spending minimum 60 hours a week with a lot of these people. You might as well all get on and be able to go out and party when the time calls for it. And I think many businesses see culture as an afterthought rather than as a central requirement of a successful business. You can't see okay, let's take everyone out for dinner or karaoke. So, you know, these things are often just jettisoned and thrown around as if they don't really matter. But the culture and way in which you build a team and manage that team and inspire and energize that team is absolutely umbilically tied to the way you perform. Whatever you do, whether you're a consultant's business like I was running or obviously what you were doing an investment management platform, there's no disguising the difference between firms that have strong cultures and firms that don't. We don't need to name names on this podcast, but, you know, listeners, you can work out who I'm referring to and who I'm not. Let's move on, Louis. So you had a speller at TPG, and then you came out of that and basically wanted to set up a business in London after Brexit. Not the worst possible time. The worst possible time is probably now to set up a new business. But you were able to secure a very strong mandate and initial agreement with Cadillac Fairview to seed and to fund your first platform. Talk through the creation of Boreal and how that relationship with the Canadians came about and what the thesis was that you shared.
1: Yeah, you mentioned, so 10 years at Blackstone and then a brief time at DPG, and you're talking about cultures, those are very different cultures, no? And Blackstone has a very discreet culture that's been built over the last 30 years, which I'm sure is still very strong there. I think after 10 years there, it was good for me to see something different, to get sort of more insights as to what I wanted to build as a business. But yeah, effectively, I was at a point in my career where I wanted to work with people, I mean, a bit to what you were just saying, people I respected, people I liked, people that frankly I could learn and be inspired by. And that's what I have now with my current partners. We're all very, very different guys, but we're quite complementary, and I think that's been really helpful to grow it. So I mentioned him before, Nikos Koulouras, who I went to business school with in New York many moons ago by now. We worked together at Merrill Lynch. We've been friends since then. Peter Bingo, with whom I've worked with at Blackstone for 10 years, and James Farmer, who's an incredible investor and a great all-around human being. And then what we wanted to set up with Boreal is we wanted to create a different business with its own unique culture. So we were lucky that when we launched a business, a number of people from Blackstone, from Europa Capital, from AW followed us. And these guys had jobs, they had options. You no? Know? So they followed us and that was maybe the nucleus. Then we wanted to really create a different team. So in terms of recruiting, we've been paying a lot of attention to it. It's led by a partner. Everyone gets involved. Then we truly wanted to have a diverse business. And that's not easy in real estate to be transparent. But today we're 40% women at Boreal and we're trying hard to get more social economic diversity. And I think what was probably the most important to us is we wanted to create a culture of ownership. And then you were asking me, obviously, about my time building up Logic or Blackstone. I truly felt ownership of that. I felt I was kind of running, developing, building this platform. And so we want to create that for everyone that works with us. And we've done that to a certain extent, like everyone that's a few years in the business shares into the profit of the business. But frankly, if you ask me, one of my proudest moments in the last year or so is I was on a train with some of my younger colleagues and they had had a few cocktails and they what were train was this it was just a train obviously not in england it might have been in england oh, really? no the cocktails were before the train
0: i was going to say oh, this cocktail on a can from Marks and spencer's at euston maybe no, just uh, they were not those but as um, i said these aren't the normal train i get you're
1: lucky if you get a piece of lemon cake <laughs> and a cup of tea bloody hell but these guys were talking about our culture and our process even though they're less than a year in the business no and that put a huge smile on my face so we felt like with that team and that team that thought like principles we would get great results. And that's true for what we're doing now, logistics. But that's also true for things we might do in the future, you know, where we think these guys are smart, they've done different asset classes, they feel ownership, they'll be able to look at how the world's changing, how these paradigm shifts, and help us find ways to invest behind that. And then I guess you're asking me, like, yeah, but all this would be pipe dream if it wasn't for obviously some money. the capital behind us. Look, real estate is a capital-intensive business, Cocktails um, don't pay for themselves. They don't pay for themselves. Neither do these people that were appreciating the culture. There's no doubt that having someone that knows you, trusts you, and is willing to put themselves at risk behind you is just key to get a business start in this field. And for that, we and my partners were always going to be grateful to the leadership of OTPP and to Jenny Hammerlunu back to us at the start. There was also a great synergy. You know, They wanted to invest in pan-European logistics. They're a long-term investor, and they can work across the risk spectrum from core to opportunistic. So for us, that was by far the best fit for our business. And
0: what was the thesis that you sat down with Cadillac Fairview on day zero and put to them? Was it about trying to do what you'd done before? Logically, obviously, it was a very different funding environment. The market had matured. What was it you were trying to achieve with the first platform? This is with logistics, because you are looking, as you've just said, creating other platforms to sit alongside this.
1: What was the starting point? Originally, the thesis and what Cadillac wanted to create is very similar to Logicor, to a lesser extent, Mile Away. So to some extent, this is something I knew very, very well, and I had done, no? And obviously, Logicor, we started building the platform in 2013, and then here we got started in 2022, but fundamentally, a lot of the same dynamic was still there. It was in some ways more difficult to do than 10 years ago. Obviously, the fundamentals behind the asset class are now very well understood by all the market players. So there's no kind of hiding and nobody's selling me a non-core logistics asset. And the industrial industry is a lot more institutional across Europe than it was 10 years ago. So that makes it more difficult. But if you kind of take a step back, forget that we've been talking about some of these themes for a long time, they're still very much there. like E-commerce penetration rate is still a lot lower in continental Europe than it is in the US and the UK. And that's going to keep moving in the same direction. I think you have some new themes. Reshoring is a real thing. It's actually quite difficult to quantify in Europe. In the US, you can quantify it fairly well because it's all at in the Mexican border to the US, and you can see there the increasing in stock, the rents going up and all that. In Europe, as usual, it's a bit murkier to get the data. It's a bit more dispersed across the continent, Mm. but it's happening. Like a couple of months back, I was in Valencia, and I looked at a warehouse that's full of furniture that's done in China, Historically, that furniture was put on a boat and delivered straight to the stores. Now they rent 40,000 square meters to store that furniture in Valencia in case there's a disruption. No, they've just lived through this with COVID. So, is that a structural change, or do you think that's an initial knee jerk
0: response to the pandemic that might die out as and when cargo costs? reduce back? Because cargo costs are very cyclical, aren't they? You know, we have a spike in shipping costs
1: every couple of years, and we're still at the top end of that now, even though they've come off a bit. I think that's a structural change. Now, is it likely to die down? I would say no. I think, look, the tendency obviously is not to hold inventory if you're corporate. No, there's a cost to that. Yeah, But I think people will probably hold more inventory closer to the consumer than they have done. I think we might have... Gone past the peak of like. My ideal is
0: Rolex, isn't it? I mean, if you think about the greatest business model on earth. It's go into a shop, you can't buy any watches because it's a Rolex shop and you can't buy any watches. Put your money down, you wait however many months, a year,
1: and they make it, having taken your money off you on day one. It's brilliant. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure that people feel the same way about their white goods or their sofa, though. Um, <laughs> for anyone who's tried to order a sofa in central London and waited three months for it, I think consumers are not expecting faster delivery times on just about everything. So we went through this a few years ago and we were trying to buy a couple of beautiful
0: leather chairs off of John Lewis, I think, kind of whiskey drinking chairs I wanted. And we had the exact same issue. And my wife suggested that we get a returned item off of eBay. Had a scratch on it. I've got terrible eyesight, so I wouldn't have seen the scratch on the underside of the arm or something like that. And the time you've got a cat and your children on it, the things would going be covered in scratches anyway. And these things not only were half price, but arrived a week later from some warehouse in Northampton. So my advice to anybody listening to this that's got a three-month wait for a sofa is, if you've got kids and you've got pets. Don't worry about buying it new. <laughs> but no, I take your point. But that's not a new thing,
1: though. You've always had to wait three weeks for a sofa, you? <laughs> Yes. I think the market is probably moving in a direction where you will not have when people are getting used to get their detergent within five hours from Amazon. I don't think they're going to wait five months for their sofas. So I think this is changing. And you have things that are less discussed, obviously, back to your question about, like, does that make sense? And did they want to do the same thing as Logic Or? So yes, some of the trends... Are still there like for instance urbanization which is less talked about but if you think about it the world keeps urbanizing europe which is the most urbanized place on the planet keeps urbanizing where are these people going they're going in the edges of cities you know where you used to have the industrial stock so that stock is being pulled out to give way to resi to give to infrastructure
0: do you feel guilty about that do you feel guilty about Taking land away from housing, building sheds on it.
1: No, because it's usually sheds higher value, and you know? also usually it's the other way around. It's like people are taking sheds out, putting resi, but then what that means is your sheds that are left there will increase in value and have increased in value a lot. No, and that means that you also need to put another shed somewhere because the demand. is. No, yeah, no, that that's stuff.
0: historically. I mean, it's been interesting. You're absolutely correct. A lot of industrial has been taken out to build sheds and that's largely why the rents have been so unaffordable in London and why anybody that's got industrial land has done so well right because there's a massive moat around access to the market but there have been a few an increasing number probably more of an English thing than Europe the trend I'm referring to where people holding resi consents have on a few occasions flipped them back into industrial is more a contract of a How quick it is to develop industrial, B, how complex and risky it is to do RESI, and the fact that overall you can probably make more money on whatever your basis is doing industrial in certain geographical markets just because demand is such that you can make the rent stack up.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would imagine that's fairly limited though, Andy, because RESI you can build vertical, it's a higher and best value use of the land, no? So it might happen in some cases, like we bought a warehouse in Dagenham Q4, so a year ago, effectively. And if you look all around it, it used to be all industrial. There's resi popping up everywhere. And that's fine. I mean, that's just like London's growing. You no, know? it keeps attracting people and these people have got a place to live. Mm. So yeah, there might be a few instances of where the industrial use was the higher and best use of the land, but I would imagine that's still limited. Mm. But your point though, going back to the point you're making in terms of the thesis, that you see urbanization
0: increasing and with that obviously a demand for being able to buy Detergent or toilet paper or whatever you want to buy, but also the other critical elements that come with that urbanization, which can be any sort of industrial use, not simply e-commerce, but multiple other things that occur within that whole landscape. What do you see as being the sort of separating factors between different parts of Europe? Because there's a totally different approach that you take in Southern Europe from more mature markets like Holland or the UK, right?
1: They all have their... Peculiarities. And 17 years in Europe, I find Europe fascinating. No, that's why I'm still here. I love it. No, you get out of London on one day you can fly to Frankfurt, and the next day you fly over to Madrid, you're getting a very different environment, very different culture, but also a very different real estate investment environment. And I think part of the skill of investing in Europe is: I mean, nobody's going to speak every single language, but you need to try to understand, be curious about the cultures try to understand them and try to understand how the various societies and the fabric of these societies function. And that actually is just part of being an investor in Europe. It's more than just putting numbers on a page. The JV with Cadillac, we are already in six markets around Europe. So we're in the UK, France, Germany, Netherlands, Spain, and Italy. They all have their different dynamics. Over the years, my partners and I have operated in all these markets. When I started building Logicor in 2012, germany was really the only market where it was tough to build new stock of logistics now across france and the netherlands it's as difficult the constraint to new supply is really really high people don't want that in their backyard it's less true in spain and in the uk and to some extent italy so they all have their own dynamics ways they work like typically after a market change Spain and Italy take a very long time to adjust. UK is the first one to adjust, and the Netherlands, and so on and so forth. So, when you've seen these patterns a couple of times, you know it, and you try to operate around them. No, mm. and many people have looked at logistics over the last five
0: or six years and thought it's a bit easy. There's lots of people just allocating free money, riding the market.
1: What would you say to those sorts of critics? Well, I think they were correct. You no, know, over the last few years. <laughs> I mean, the market has been going up and up, so it's quite difficult to get it wrong in such a market, no? That's why I like, obviously, the market shift now. I think it really is good for a business like ours, no? I mean, I've been doing this since 2007. My partners have been doing this for a long time also. We know all these markets. Back in 2021, it felt like you needed to buy today because it's only going to be more expensive tomorrow or in three months from now, which really doesn't feel comfortable as an investor. Now, the market shifted it's more difficult to read. And I think in this kind of environment, it is not that easy to aggregate logistics across Europe. Each country's got its own set of laws, ways to structure, its own set of characters, its own banks. And you got to learn to navigate all that, have contacts in all these places, which is what we've done. I mean, all of us, the partners, we've been doing this for almost 20 years each in Europe. And so does our team. So The people that say it was easy, yeah, it was easy for a while. Now, you could get caught, no? Obviously, if you were investing in 2021, 22. Also, generally, given the shift in the assets in the sector, I think you could probably invest all the way to 2019 or so and have done all right. Your assets are still probably worth more today, which is not the case for office, for instance. No, and we're going to
0: see some big shifts. And I think looking across into 2024, We haven't really started to feel the pain, have we, in the space, in terms of European real estate. We've seen some of it in Germany. We've seen the odd deal here fall out. We've seen refinancings grind to a halt in certain areas. But
1: it doesn't feel like that has really rippled through the market yet. That's correct, Andy. I think the asset class we're now active in is probably the one that readjusted the fastest because there's demand, obviously, people generally are positive on the midterm fundamentals. So that's created a bit of a price discovery, which started with the UK retail funds needing to sell in Q422. And we were quite active when that happened. That started to create a bit of price discovery around Europe. And that's Today, the asset class that trades the most. So, so you're able to buy stuff at discount from some of the big fund managers that
0: were gating or facing redemptions and needed to sell assets.
1: That's what you're seeing in logistics now. You're not seeing distress, really. You're seeing people that need liquidity for one reason or another, and that's the liquid asset class that they can sell where there's a market for it. So to your original point, yes, you haven't seen it yet in office. People are not trading it because obviously the markdown is just too significant. I mean, if I look forward 2024, I don't know how much investment volume we're going to see. We've just gone through such a massive shift in interest rates. And I think most people probably agree that interest rates have peaked. I don't think what people don't know is where should real estate yields be in that environment where capital is scarcer is more expensive. And until people know that, then I think people remain hesitant. The core money will definitely be hesitant, as they should, because they're not paid to make that sort of bet. So a volume should be fairly low in 2024. I would imagine in all asset classes, obviously for us, we want to be invested in 2024. We want to be investing in 2024 because in environments where you have less liquidity is usually where you have the best investment vintages.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I suppose as well, you talk about prices coming back quicker in industrials versus retail offices. Presumably that's also the nature of the tenant base you have because the tenant base for a business like Boreal and for others in your asset class, it's quite a broad church of different players from, as you said earlier on, e-commerce businesses, logistics firms, energy and infrastructure. So you're actually exposed to quite a broad array of sectors whereas if you've got an office fund you're largely going to have law firms professional services banks as the tenants which whilst broad is still a relatively focused area of the economy right and if the bank's having a bad time the lawyers are going to be having a bad time and the office runs are going to go down whereas if you're exposed to a broad array of different occupiers from fashion to sofa retailers to dhl
1: fedex and amazon then that's actually pretty wide Yeah, no, that's correct. Like industrial, historically pre sort of e commerce was effectively like a fairly high beta play on the macro, no? Even our portfolio now, which is getting bigger, we're exposed to a number of different industries. And look, yeah, there's things we talked about e commerce. I mean, that secular shift is still happening. So on some of our assets, we do have e commerce tenants that are still active, still have. Growth in their business, not the growth that obviously you saw during the pandemic, but looking for space. But that being said, look, we're feeling the macro headwinds like the office business, I think, especially for the bigger assets where people were corporates. So, some of the manufacturing or like cosmetics or whichever type of tenant, like before you're just making a decision to take a 50,000 square meters warehouse asset, the big corporates probably said, like, we're not spending anywhere. No, so you're going to probably put that one on hold or you're going to take a while to make your decision. So I'm not going to try to say we're not affected. I think what is... But you're saying there's a buying opportunity now because there are companies that are in distress.
0: These assets are more liquid and you've got some pretty good money stockpile for your partnership with Cadillac.
1: Yeah, and I think where I find the investment opportunity... I guess interesting and maybe different from office is that if I try to look past the near-term macro headwinds, fundamentally, I'm still very confident that the demand will be there on the other side of the macro headwind. Whereas on office, it's a lot less clear how big this demand will be. I think generally people think it's going to actually be less, no 10 to 15 to 20% less than it was before, which then makes, I think, the investment decision today much more difficult unless you're buying sort of bullseye location in the centers of CDBDs, which I think everyone agrees is in demand. I think the bigger question on office is, what about these more secondary locations? and Where is there going to be the demand for this? Whereas on logistics, to some extent, the demand's going to be broader across the different locations on the other side of this macro slowdown. And how
0: do you see other asset classes evolving over the next year? So we touched a little bit on Resi, and you've done a little bit of Resi at Blackstone, but Where do you see that? Because obviously student housing has done pretty well over the last years. It's been a staff performer during COVID across Europe. Again, many of these markets across the continent are very underdeveloped, are very immature. There's a structural imbalance in the supply of housing versus the demand as there is with industrial. But it is harder to build the stuff. It's more political. You've got many, many more tenants in a building. And it seems like, the specter of rent controls is going to play a big part in how England develops as it has in Scotland. And all of these things make it a bit more hard than it is maybe to build a retail or a logistics box.
1: Yeah, there is no doubt. Look, I mean, for us, yeah, all of us partners at Boreal, we've all done different things in our career. And also near term, our focus is very much on our industrial platform. I think we love the opportunity we have now, given the market repricing, and we think we can build something much larger and super interesting. And we keep our eyes on the other sectors, knowing where everything is heading. And I've got friends in the industry doing everything from retail to office to resi to student housing. So where do I see the other sectors? It's difficult to sometimes have a clear answer because I don't feel I'm deep enough in many of them, obviously being focused on one. I think for us, what we want to, be doing in the midterm as we kind of eventually invest on other asset classes is kind of find these like paradigm shift, these secular tailwinds that drive behind an asset class. And that applies to Resi. You're right in terms of people moving towards city, as we talked about before. And yes, in Europe, it does have complications because, yeah, you have rental controls everywhere you don't know when they're going to come and in which form they're going to come, which in my view is a big risk, which is not something we have in the logistics business today. I think the European market, because it's fragmented, because different countries, different systems of laws, remains 15 years behind the US. So a lot of the asset classes that exist in the US, like student housing, like manufactured housing, like battery storage, like truck stops, they are behind in Europe. And so... We find that for us as a business, given the team we've built, we'll have the ability to kind of see these secular trends and sort of invest behind them. And what are we going to be focusing on, to your point? Like, I don't see us focusing on office in general across Europe. I think some people can do that very well. I think we see ourselves possibly looking at stuff that is more granular, more fragmented, stuff that's not institutional, And then sort of using our pan-European knowledge, our pan-European platform to aggregate that and be part of this process of institutionalizing these asset classes. Mm. And I think there's going to be a lot of interesting things to do in these kind of what are more niche sectors today, but will eventually grow to be kind of full-blown asset classes.
0: Yeah, and I guess a lot of that's going to depend on regulation and technology, whether you're thinking about battery storage different sorts of charging technology, different sorts of energy technology. That's yeah, but we're like
1: spending a ton, like look, battery storage is a good one, Andy. Like in our work on sheds, we're like looking at putting PVs on our warehouses in the Netherlands, no? And so we have something like 25 assets in the Netherlands. There's a number of them today. We can't even put PVs on it because you can't plug into the grid because the grid is capacity constrained. and that's happening all over Europe. So that makes you think about battery storage and then you're like trying to learn as much as you can about it no? and there is probably an opportunity there eventually because it's small it's granular it's very difficult for the large asset managers to operate in that sector because you're investing two three five ten million at a time which typically they're not set up to do Mm. and what other parallel sectors
0: are piquing your interest when it comes to this i mean we talked about battery storage where do you see things like manufacturing and some of where that borders into science and technology, whether that's for medical devices, digital health, these things, and data centers as well, where it's the base asset as an industrial building that might have different uses within it.
1: I mean, all these sectors are interesting, no? and I think typically when you have a secular trend like data, AI, then it's very difficult to not see sort of a lot of future in data centers. What's gonna be key for us as a business is to find those sectors at place to our strength. Life science is another one, no, that's something I've done and looked at a lot on the continent when I was at TPG. I think it's really interesting. But they're also nascent sectors, no, they're kind of tough to invest at scale, which is where I think Southern Europe, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, correct. Typically it's good in a way you're based in London because you oftentimes the wind blows sort of west to east. So these sectors oftentimes take shape in the US move to UK, and then move over to the continent. And so being at sort of like the forefront of some of these shift and new asset classes, I think will be extremely interesting in the next few years. Mm. A key thing you mentioned with the business, you do
0: have actually a lot of different languages within the company and a lot of different cultures within the company. And that does give you a genuine pan-European platform. It isn't just a bunch of guys sitting in Soho in London claiming they can... Understand the French or the Spanish markets.
1: Correct. And the yeah, end, that was definitely done on purpose. To operate at ease in Europe, it's much easier if you speak the language, know the culture. You can, you don't necessarily need to do it. I mean, I don't speak every language known to Europe, and I've invested in 17 countries. So it's not impossible. But yes, by design, I think we have like 12 or 14 languages and 10 nationalities in the office on 23 people. And that was done on purpose, obviously.
0: Mm. So there's going to be a lot of people in the current climate coming out of businesses, probably coming out of big businesses, setting up their own shops. What advice would you give for any entrepreneurs that are in the position that you and your partners were in a few years ago? What two or three pieces of golden nugget advice could you share for free to some of these guys?
1: (laughs) God, I wish. It is something that is very difficult to do. You have to have strong desire and conviction to want to get there because there'll be lots of ups and downs along the way. I think one of the guys that gave me a good piece of advice on this was Neil Cara, who who now runs Node as a former colleague at Blackstone. Ready guy. Yep. So he's a smart dude. He's a very smart guy and Neil's a very good friend and he's done resi. He was actually behind Nido, the student housing platform and Neil launched that when he was at Blackstone. But Neil told me, like, look, to be an entrepreneur, you got to be a glass half full kind of guy. Otherwise, it just work out. So Yeah, he's definitely one of those. The people you do this with matters a lot. I think for me, I've got three partners with me in this business and as I said before, you'd probably struggle to put more different human beings in the same place but that complementarity helps a lot and i think makes us stronger as long as we continue to leverage each other and respect each other which is yeah
0: so i think it's fair to say boreal is definitely a a teenage mutant ninja turtles assortment of personalities
1: (laughs) i would not have put it that way andy but yes
0: it's something for the next
1: investor deck yeah (laughs) put some colored headbands around yourself but all good businesses are such aren't they you do see businesses that seem to be really by the founder and he seems to be that sort of like all inclusive Force behind it, yeah.
0: But certainly, if you look at something like Patron, Tristan, these bellwethers of the private equity real estate world, there's one top guy, and it's always a guy that's sort of there with his teenage Ninja Turtle headband on,
1: playing basketball. whatever, if we're thinking about Rick Lewis, yeah. I cannot speak for the other businesses, and they were also launched at a different time. But for us, it's truly a partnership. And you know what? I've been super happy to see it mentioned a bit earlier. Is the culture that initially came from. The original partners, which obviously had a strong Blackstone tent, given that two of us spent ten years there, but that's now gotten a lot of culture coming in from AW and Nikos, from James, and increasingly from the team. And so the culture we had on day one has now evolved. It's kind of now this blend of this original crew that we all have that have also taken ownership into the business and have turned it into what it is. So I'd be actually a bit far pushed to tell you what exactly it is. It's just this kind of mix of these various ingredients that all our team has brought to the table, which is great. Yeah,
0: I think the mistake that a lot of businesses make, I've seen over the years, businesses I've advised is where People think culture is something that you can write on a bit of paper and sell a tape
1: to the fridge, and it isn't. No, no, no. You need to think about it. You need to proactively nurture it to some extent, but it also, in my view, probably just evolved on its own based on the personalities and what you're all doing. Mm. And just within that, how does the culture and the conviction of Boreal
0: align with the culture and the conviction? Of Cadillac Fairview is obviously your partner and the investor in your first fund. Well, first platform, rather, it's not a fund. Yeah.
1: Look, we work very closely with them. Now, there's a team at Cadillac OTPP that has been working with us from the beginning. They obviously take great pride and ownership in terms of what we've been doing with them. And I think the senior team there at OTPP recognizes that. So we've been working with them really closely. And in terms of investment, obviously we're the ones that knew the asset class very well, but obviously they've gone to learn it or know it. And there are also long-term investors that wanted the right thing. And that goes from an investment perspective, but also something like ESG, which is something that's very much sort of like important to our investor and something that's super important to Boreal and to our team there. So There's a very good alignment, if you will, in terms of people and investment and how to asset manage going forward. Mm.
0: We've talked about some of the headwinds and some of the trends. Just to finish up, what do you see as being the story for 24? People have talked about surviving to 25, which seems a bit of a glass half empty way of looking at it. But notwithstanding all of the political uncertainty that comes with the US elections and everything else, what do you see as being the
1: narrative for the next 12 months? I think given the level of uncertainty still out there, I think on a macro interest rate level, I think there's a much better visibility than there was early in 23. I think on a real estate investment and sort of where yields will settle when this is all said and done, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty. So I think we're unlikely to see a ton of investment volumes. I would imagine we're gonna start seeing the cracks in the office market, and that's gonna start generating, if not opportunities, things will start to appear from our own perspective. Mm. I think we're gonna see opportunities from two sides coming through. One is people needing liquidity, and logistics is the liquid asset class where pricing level has more or less been established, so that should bring good opportunities for us. And I think we're gonna see opportunities coming through ESG. In the last few years, obviously, the importance of everything sustainably ESG related has taken a massive step change, and we're seeing it everywhere now. Obviously, that's something that as a business we try to jump on very quickly. That's something that's important to our investor. We decided to kind of focus on being very action oriented in terms of what we do. And what that means is over the last couple of years, we've built a lot of know-how in terms of what it took to take a brown asset and transform it into a future-proof asset Mm. and the cost of doing that. And there's still a lot more to learn, but as people worry about some of these brown assets and decide to flog them effectively because they don't know how to, or they don't want to actually do the work, I think for us that's gonna bring another great set of opportunities because we like to think we're nimble, we're proactive we are built a lot of the know-how, so buying some of these brown assets that people will realize, look, I cannot hold them as is for the next 10 years, for us to buy them and do the work, do the capex, and turn them into future-proof asset is going to bring another set of opportunities. Mm. And those are things you're going to be able to apply across different categories yes. as well, presumably. Correct. Logistics is probably one of the easier ones to do it, obviously, but I think it is going to come across every asset class and the know-how you have, you don't lose, and you can yeah, reapply the majority of to another asset class for sure.
0: But before we finish, we need one hilarious, slightly unprincipled story about John Gray. Are you going to hand one over?
1: <laughs> There's not a chance I'll hand that over to you. I still have a business to grow, Andy. But no, look, John is the most charismatic leader I've ever worked with. He's an unbelievably hardworking guy. I mean, John would call me, on a sa- well, if you want a story, on a Saturday afternoon about a $25 million investment in Italy and complain about the color of my chart. But that's how detailed he is, and that's how much he cares. And I'm sure he had better things to do on that day. He's also a tremendous investor, and he can be incredibly detailed, as I mentioned, the sort of color of the graph or whether the decimal is not at the right place. But he's also the guy that'll tell you, look through this, like cut out the noise, like where is this asset going? Where is this asset class going? And that, to me, like working with him, working with Ken Kaplan, Anthony Myers, working with these guys has been a tremendous opportunity. Not that they get it right all the time, but they've seen so many patterns over the last thirty years. They've traded hundreds of billions of real estate that they get it more right than wrong. Mm. Well, that's a good place, Stephen. That's quite a good theme for
0: The next 12 months, cutting out the noise. So yeah, that's what we're trying to do. Well, best of luck with it, and thank you very much for coming on and having a chat. It's been great to have you on, Louis Simon Fairland, boss of Boreal. I've been Andrew Teacher, senior advisor to Montford. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. You can subscribe to podcasts uh, from us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, SoundCloud, wherever. Just search Propcast and subscribe. We will see you again very, very soon. Thank you very much for listening. Send your guest suggestions, comments, compliments and abuse to me via LinkedIn. I will see you very soon. Take care. Bye-bye.